Robots Radio presents... In 1998, director Steven Spielberg and star Tom Hanks gave the world a gripping war drama that took us to the heart of the Second World War. In 2020, we finish off the springtime of Swill with a bottom-shelf battle royale. The film is Saving Private Ryan. The whiskey is Evan Williams. And we'll review them both. This is... The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. And I'm Brad G. And this week, we are looking at the 1998 classic, Saving Private Ryan. Brad, first of all, I I do want to say, you know, we're lining this up with Memorial Day. It's a day, for those of you who are not Americans, that we honor America's fallen soldiers. Yeah, Bob, this is a, it's an important holiday for all of us who live here. Um, When you look at America's history, a lot of it, unfortunately, has been marked by bloodshed. You know, the American Revolution all the way through our current conflicts across the globe. You can throw all the politics to the side and you can you can just say that, you know, a lot of Americans have fallen for our flag and uh, we're very thankful for their service. And, you know, Memorial Day is a big holiday for that. And Brad, I don't know if we could have picked a better movie to talk about. This is probably, at least in my opinion, this is the greatest war film ever made. And I think it deserves talking about because Brad, To be honest with you, I think this might be one of the most misunderstood war films ever made, or maybe not misunderstood, but a a movie that is hard to pin down. Yeah, Bob, I I think it's it's understandable that you would say that because this movie takes you in a lot of different directions. Uh, It's one of those films that, you know, kids get shown it when they're in high school, when they're like 17 or 18. And friend of show Jordan and I were talking and he was like, yeah, man, they showed this to me when I was like a junior in high school. And I remember being like, why the heck are they showing this to me? It is brutally graphic, like extremely violent. And yet I I think that there is some value in talking about why it's important that we see such violence. But the problem is a lot of people see it as just this violent war film. And I really think it's a lot more than that. And I think that probably contributes to what you're talking about when you say this movie can be misunderstood. Yeah. And I think there's also a debate that seems to be raging now that the movie's been out for you know over 20 years where people are reevaluating it. And I see a lot of people arguing that it's a pro-war movie or that it's a, you know, an overly patriotic movie that that America is great and everybody else sucks. And like, I I think that's a really reductionist way of looking at this movie. And we're going to get into talking about it, Brad. Director Steven Spielberg, this was a very personal film for him to make. His dad was a World War II veteran. We talked a little bit on our E.T. episode about how Spielberg and his dad had a very strained relationship. And, you know, part of the marketing for this movie was Spielberg talking about how making this movie kind of mended his relationship with his dad a little bit. And I don't know how true that was in real life, but you get the sense even watching this, that this is an important film for Spielberg personally. I think there are times when, when Spielberg kind of gets in a groove and he can crank out a movie that has that classic Spielberg charm, like nothing. And then you see a movie like Schindler's List or a movie like Saving Private Ryan, where he is operating on such a different level in a completely different rhythm, a completely different style of filmmaking that you can tell this meant something to him. Yeah, it's that it's those movies that you realize why he is a legend. And I don't know when else I'm going to get a chance to say this, Brad. So I'll say it off uh, here at the top. I have only ever seen one episode of the show Dawson's Creek. You ever watch Dawson's Creek? No, I have never, <laughs> ever seen Dawson's Creek. I, I'm really curious as to why this is being brought up right now. So the episode that I saw, the main character, Dawson, James Vanderbeek, was apparently, I don't know if it's a storyline in the show, but he wants to be a filmmaker. And he goes to like this small little um, film festival for short films. And as he's checking in, they ask each person, who's your favorite filmmaker? And he says, Spielberg. And the whole scene is like everybody in the room starts laughing at him because he says that Spielberg is his favorite filmmaker. For whatever reason, Steven Spielberg seems to be reviled by snooty cinephiles and film critics. I've never understood it because is some of his stuff schmaltzy? 
Probably. Is some of this stuff sentimental? Sure. When I watch a movie like Saving Private Ryan and I see what Steven Spielberg is able to pull off just on a, t- a purely technical level, this movie is astounding, Brad. Yeah, it's it's an epic of a movie. Like when you think about epic movies, you think about Gone with the Wind. You think about 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I think that you can easily throw Saving Private Ryan in there. The big difference is this movie is accessible. It's not hard for the modern viewer to watch. Yeah, and and I would even go a little bit further than that, Brad. And I would say that it it has a sense, I don't want to call it intimacy, but the the style that they filmed it, it's almost shot like one of those old World War II documentaries. Lots of handheld, lots of gritty. It's it's not very flashy. When you take a step back and you think about all the ground they cover in this movie, all of the incredibly difficult camera setups, the choreography of these fight scenes, it is truly an epic film. And I think one of the greatest feats that Spielberg accomplishes is making it seem like it's not an epic film. Yeah, it it really feels like you're just moving along with this troupe. When you watch the way that each shot is composed and you, you look at the way Spielberg introduces you and helps you get to know the characters, it's just such an easy film to watch. Like, you know, most of the time, I, I wrote this down in my notes, most of the time, whenever we watch a movie that is two and a half hours or longer, Bob and I will get to the end of the movie, you know, the end of the episode or at some point we'll say, yeah, this movie would have been great. You just needed to trim off X amount of minutes, 10, 15, 20 minutes, right? Like we do that all the time. Oh, absolutely. I don't know if you need to cut out more than maybe five minutes of this movie, Bob. Like I got to the end of it. I didn't feel tired. I didn't feel like it went on too long. I didn't feel like it dragged, even though there's slower moments in the film. And so I look at this film and I go, holy cow, you, sure, maybe you could have cut off two or three minutes here or there, but it's it's an entrancing film for two hours and 50 minutes. Well, I think our listeners probably already have a sense of where this episode is going, Brad. This seems to be a movie that we both really, really enjoy. So before we get too far down the rabbit hole of talking about it, let's back up a little bit and let's introduce America's favorite segment, Brad Explains. Brad, I am interested to hear what you have to say about this movie. The first question, our prelude to Brad Explains, is had you seen this movie before this podcast? Bob, I actually had only seen this movie one time in my life. I I remember watching it probably when I was like 16 to 18, sometime in the late high school years. So it's been, you know, what, 13 years probably since you've seen it. It's been a long enough time that you probably forgot most of what happened in this movie. Yeah, there were certain scenes that like stuck out to me, like the the scene in the middle of the film when Tom Hanks makes them charge the machine gunner's nest like that. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. And, you know, the final battle I kind of remembered, obviously, the uh, invasion of Normandy, I remembered pretty well. But but a lot of that other stuff in the middle kind of was gone for me. All right, Brad. So that puts us in a really great position for Brad Explains. Can you break down the plot of the movie Saving Private Ryan for our listeners? Yeah, Tom Hanks saves Private Ryan. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah, so the film starts off and it is the most realistic and graphic retelling of the invasion of Normandy that's ever been done in cinematic history. So you get to see Tom Hanks uh, lead his battalion, his his, you know, troop onto the beach of Normandy and they storm up. They, you know, destroy some machine gunners nest and eventually take the beach. And then you, you get a scene where you find out um, back at American headquarters that there's a family that has four young boys that are in the war and that three of those young men died on the beaches of Normandy. And so they find out that the fourth, a private Ryan, uh, was paratrooped behind enemy lines in France. And so they send the order out that they uh, that Tom Hanks's troop, his squad, is tasked with finding private Ryan and bringing him back so he could be sent home so that this family isn't deprived of all four of their children. All right. And that's it. I mean, that really is. The, the whole film plot wise, there's not a ton going on. This small platoon has a mission and they're trying to accomplish it and you're following them on their mission. But what I love about the movie is the way that they kind of weave in these other themes to 
keep the action going, to keep the movie kind of progressing along. And I think that, Brad, I've, I've identified a couple themes in this movie, and I'll, we'll get into talking about them throughout the episode. But the first one that I think Spielberg really hammers home in a way that really hadn't been done in war films before is the absolute chaos of it all. And I don't just mean that it's, you know, it's chaotic and you're looking around and there's explosions everywhere, which is true about it, this movie. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. And and I think you see the effects of how random it all is on the characters themselves. There's no reason that any of these guys should be alive any more than the guy next to them that was storming the beach. And what really puts you in that mindset is this opening 25 minute depiction of the invasion of Normandy. It is incredibly graphic. I, I saw this movie at a way too young age. And I have gotten so familiar with the movie over the years that I, I feel like I always appreciated kind of the technical stuff behind it and how they pulled it off and stuff like that. But it wasn't really until this time, Brad, watching it, that I think I really started to feel the weight and the grief of the loss of human life that was happening. And Brad, a couple of weeks ago, you actually said at the end of our Revenant episode that one thing you didn't like about that film was the callousness or the, the sort of cheap way that they depicted a rape scene. And I had that in the back of my mind while I was watching this film. And yet, for some reason in this film, I feel like the utter carelessness of the forces of nature at the deaths of so many people is kind of exactly the point of the movie. There is no explaining it. And these young men have been dropped into this field of battle with so much carnage around them. No explanation for why some live and some die. And I feel like that sense of unease and complete randomness is really a driving force in this movie. Yeah, it almost feels capricious just how devastating this war was. And I think I think you're completely right in bringing up my thoughts on The Revenant because in this film, I think the beauty of the callousness of just the carnage of war goes to show just how evil a massive land war is. Um, and, and and I'm not I'm not commenting on, you know, anything political that war itself is evil or anything. But like, I'm sorry, but people human beings dying is bad. It, it just is. And especially when it's at the hands of other human beings. And so, like, for me, as I was watching it this time, I, I guess I was just struck at my emotional core that these young German and young American and young British troops were dying left and right up upon the thousands because you know certain political leaders decided that they wanted the Anschluss of Austria, which we talked about last week in The Sound of Music. There's so much going on here politically that it just terrifies me that hundreds of thousands of young men had to die because of the ambitions of some politicians. Well, and I I think that's something that's explored in this movie, too, and that the movie itself doesn't get enough credit for. You know, you see General Marshall make a decision to send this small group of soldiers to go find Private Ryan. And in his mind, it's the right thing to do because there is a mom back in Iowa who's lost three sons and is on the verge of losing four. But he also doesn't have to deal with the ramifications of what that mission means to the lives of each man in this unit. They are all constantly wondering, why is Ryan's life worth any more than mine? And no matter how many times someone says he lost all his brothers, I think that that sort of mentality of the randomness of it all kind of creeps back in because they're like, you know, tough luck. I'm sorry that he lost his brothers, but why should we be trying to assuage as you know, as the marshal general marshal says, Mrs. Ryan's guilt when my mom is going to get that folded flag if I die on this mission. It doesn't make any sense, sir. Why? Why me? Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Is that what they're supposed to tell your mother when they send her another folded American flag? Tell her that when you found me, I was here, and I was with the only brothers that I have left. And there's no way I was going to desert them. I think she'll understand that. There's no way I'm leaving this bitch. That's what—that's one of the nuances that people lose when they're talking about this movie. 
the soldiers, the boots on the ground are constantly griping and constantly wondering about the morality of what they're doing and wondering if this is all worth it. And we lose a lot of that when we just view this movie as like this positive pro-war, pro-America thing, which I don't think is what Spielberg is even trying to do with this film. No, I mean, I I wouldn't say that it's not pro-America. I, I think that there are a lot of elements in this film that are, you know, they're very patriotic. Um, I don't personally have a problem with that, but I think it would definitely be uh, a, a bad take to say that that's all this movie is about, is that it's just a pro-America, let's go beat the other, you know, the German, the whomever you want to fill in the blank. I, I don't think that that's what this movie is. I guess you could look at it and you could point at how nameless the uh, the German presence is in this movie. But I, I don't think that the Germans are the focus of this film. Like you said, Bob, the focus of this film is what is the value of an individual human life? And why is Private Ryan's life possibly worth more than the troops being sent to save him? And you really wrestle with those questions and you don't totally get an answer at the end. You don't. And one of the one of the lasting lessons of the movie for the characters in it is that you never get that answer as a person who went to war. One of the most reviled things in the movie, the thing that I've seen the most critics point out as a sign of Spielberg as a lesser filmmaker, whatever you want to call it, is this book ending that you get in this movie. So you get this prologue with this old man walking through the graveyard looking for a headstone. And then at the end of the movie, you find out it was Ryan and you know, he's been saved and he has spent his whole life trying to live up to the last words that Tom Hanks character tells him, which is to earn this. James. Earn this. Earn it. Which is kind of an unfair to, unfair thing to say to a kid. Like, how can you ever live up to what someone has done for you when they lay down their life for you? And he's clearly still grappling with it because one of the last lines of the movie is him looking at his wife as this 70-something-year-old man and saying, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me that I've lived a good life. And I think that the book ending on this movie is completely necessary because it drives home this point. It all seems so random, and it seems like, how could I ever deserve this? Because no one seems to deserve what happens to them in something like war. The most emotionally crushing part of the movie for me was that final scene when he breaks down and asks his wife, was I a good man? Because I, I think that that, to me, cuts to the core of almost every human being ever to live. You know, have I lived a life of purpose? Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. And, and I think that that's what this movie cuts to the core of just just deeply is that in war, things are laid so bare so quickly. And, you know, in a sense, people might talk about war as like a character builder. I think you could also look at it as a character revealer that that it shows you who you really are. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to live either up to where you were or beyond where you were. Well, Brad, we're clearly getting into our analysis of the movie already. I think we probably should talk about the, the usual things we do with a film. You know, it almost seems kind of trivial to talk about those things with this movie. This movie has such an impact on American culture, on filmmaking itself. It has so embedded itself into the American psyche over the last 20 years. It feels in a way... More so than with most movies we've talked about, Brad, like we are talking about this sort of pedestal movie. Do you know what I mean? I feel like like nothing I say is going to kind of crack the nut of how important this movie is. And yet, like at the same time, at the end of the day, this is a movie. This is a bunch of actors and a guy with a camera making a pretend thing. So we we have to talk about the acting. We have to talk about the directing. Brad, I, I do want to get into talking about the actors and 
this cast is incredible. I I was going to say, you know, most of the people in this movie weren't really famous at the time. And history has has really served well as far as the cast list of this movie goes. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to run through some of them. Obviously, you have Tom Hanks, Matt Damon. uh, You have Adam Goldberg, Vin Diesel. You have Ted Danson, Paul Giamatti. Like this cast is stacked. Well, I mean, and then even some of the lesser people that you didn't really talk about. I mean, um, Tom Sizemore, Edward Burns, Barry Pepper, Giovanni Ribisi, Jeremy Davies, Dennis Farina shows up as a lieutenant. One person that I noticed like in the background of a scene was Ryan Hurst, who's a guy we've talked about on this podcast before, who a couple years later goes on and plays Gary Bertier in Remember the Titans. Yeah. there are so many people in this movie, Brad. It Na- is Nathan it's Fillion. just insane. Nathan Fillion has a little Yeah, little scene. exactly. He's he's the wrong Ryan in that one scene where they get him mixed up. So we obviously can't run through the whole cast list, Brad, and, and talk about this. So I want to focus on Tom Hanks. And then if you want to talk about Damon, we can. But I want to kind of get like, who's your all-star of the supporting cast underneath Tom Hanks? So let's start with Tom Hanks. What did you think of him in this movie? There were a few moments where I just I feel like if I had watched this movie in 98, I would have felt better about it. But Tom Hanks is a hard person to believe he is anybody but Tom Hanks. You know what I mean? Like he's just somebody that he's he's castaway. He's the FedEx guy from Castaway and he's Forrest Gump and he's this captain in this movie in Saving Private Ryan and you know, he's all of these things put together. And so there were a few moments at the start of the film where I was having trouble buying into Tom Hanks as the captain. Yeah, I can t- I can understand that. And and I, honestly, though, I don't think that that's his it is his fault for being such a daggone good actor and being in so many movies. But it's not his fault. Like at, at the start of the film, he gets out of the ship. And when he was kind of shell shocked. It didn't stick for me right away. But once he kind of gets into his element, once he gets up on the beach and he starts commanding troops, I was locked in with his performance. I mean, I I really think this might be one of his best performances that he's ever turned in. So he gets nominated for best actor for this movie. And I've always kind of wondered why, because on the surface of this movie, it doesn't seem like an actor's movie. You know, this is very much a spectacle movie and the actors are just kind of there, you know, in the backgrounds of the scene in some ways. When I watched it this time, Brad, I was really impressed with Tom Hanks's performance. This is a very different Tom Hanks than we're used to getting. You know, just like Spielberg can kind of coast if he wants to, I feel like Tom Hanks can kind of coast when he wants to on just being really charming. He has none of that in this movie. He plays a very guarded individual. He plays a guy who is clearly compartmentalizing how much the the death toll of men under his command is weighing on him. And I really didn't notice it, Brad, of, of how good this performance was until that scene you were talking about where they kind of uh, charge the machine gunner at the old radar station. Is that what it was, a radar station? I, I believe so, yeah. And they lose one of their men. And Tom Hanks is kind of sitting in like a foxhole and just starts weeping. But then even as he's crying, he's looking over his shoulder to see if someone's coming and you see him try to gain his composure. And Tom Hanks does it in such this beautiful, subtle way that I started noticing like, oh, he's actually not falling back on any of those Tom Hanks tendencies that he can kind of fall into sometimes. He's playing a completely different character than we're used to. And for me, it really, really worked. And he did such a good job that I I didn't even notice it the first 10 times I watched this movie. Yeah, he's playing a man that's being torn apart by the devastation of war. And and I think the reason that scene is so powerful is because the, he, he almost has this legendary status among his troops. And you finally find out that he's just an English teacher. Like, like that's all he is. He's no different than them. And, and it's this bonding moment where you realize war brings everyone to the same common denominator – and there's there's no way of escaping that. So I guess I've changed some. Sometimes I wonder if I've changed so much, my wife is even going to recognize me whenever it is I get back to her. And how I'll ever be able to... to tell her about days like today. 
Uh, Ryan... I don't know anything about Ryan. I don't care. Man means nothing to me. It's just a name. But if... You know, if going to Ramel and finding him so he can go home, if that earns me the right to get back to my wife, well, then... Then that's my mission. And, and I think that's one of the key moments of this film that really is held together, like you said, by Tom Hanks just acting his butt off. And he's so easily believable as a man being tormented by the deaths of his troops. All right. So, Brad, I'm not sure if you want to talk about Matt Damon in this movie at all. The thing with Matt Damon is like he's become so famous that I feel like we're obligated to talk about him. But in, in the course of the movie, he doesn't really have that much to do. He's not that big of a character in it. I mean, do you want to touch on him at all? Honestly, Bob, Matt, like Matt Damon was fine in the film, um, but he wasn't in enough of it to really matter, which might be a little bit of a problem because the movie purports to be about him. But I think if you really pay attention, the movie's not about Matt Damon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's about the guys in Tom Hanks's unit. And what I want to gauge from you, Brad, is who really stood out to you from among those performers? Was there one or maybe even two people that you felt like really turned in a performance that's worth mentioning? I think that one of the few people who was given a conflict to deal with uh, was the was the, the private who, right after the scene we talked we just talked about at the radar station, who almost commits mutiny. You know, he almost leaves the squad over the death of of his friend. Yeah, so that character's name is Rybin. He's played by Edward Burns. Rybin. I, I think that his performance was really good because it was the only one the script gave a chance to be nuanced. The rest of them all just kind of were who they were. The sergeant was kind of crazy, kind of funny, just kind of, you know, he just did his thing. The interpreter, the young guy who could speak French and German, he was kind of a coward throughout the whole movie. And sure, he has the one little scene at the end, but that didn't do much for him. Um, I think Rybin is the only one who was given a chance to kind of be conflicted um, and show growth. And, and so I really enjoyed that performance. I definitely agree that he was probably the most well-written character, but I don't know if I would agree that he was uh, the best actor of that platoon. What I would say, the, the two that really stuck out to me, Brad, the first one would be Giovanni Ribisi as the medic. I just, there's there's something about his performance. It's his face. It's his youthfulness. It's his... I don't know, just his his complete like earnestness that he plays that character with that his death scene has just it just destroys me every time I see it, you know, and, and he gets shot um, in the liver. He bleeds out. He starts calling for his mom. It's just like it's so tough to watch. But it wasn't until this time around that I noticed they give him this beautiful scene in the church when they're all kind of camping out one night and he talks about how. He used to pretend like he was asleep when his mom would come to check on him after a long night of work. And he just kind of starts crying, wondering, like, why did I do that? Why why am I pushing people away? It's it's a scene that in the grand scheme of things, it means nothing to the plot. But I really loved how he performed that scene, how that scene was written. It brought this really human moment to the movie that the movie doesn't really stop and pause to give those moments very often. And I thought he absolutely nailed his performance. Yeah. And I think on, on a larger scale picture, it's moments like that that make me fall in love with this movie, that that it's willing to spend time in the hectic, terrifying battle moments. But it's also willing to spend time in the quiet moments between between, you know, battle to battle. I think his willingness to stick you in the middle of of the platoon's life at war is what makes it so good. And then the other one would be Adam Goldberg playing Mellish. This was a character that I didn't think was particularly well written. Like the first half of the movie, his character was like, he tells everybody he's Jewish. Every line that he has is about using the German knife to perform a bris. It's like, okay, it, it goes over the top a little bit. And the thing is, though, he might be the best actor out of everybody in that platoon, except for Tom Hanks, because what he's doing with that character when he doesn't have lines, the way he's reacting to people, the way that they can put the camera on him as his buddies die in front of him and you can see his reaction to it. Spielberg can't give those close ups to everybody. And I really want to commend the job that he did just from a, a pure acting standpoint, even when he didn't have lines in this movie. 
for some reason, Adam Goldberg is one of those actors. I just don't like him. He just kind of seems like a jerk in every role that he he's in. For some reason, he always gets under my skin and I don't like him. Isn't it funny how act, some actors just have like a face that you don't, you just can't like them. Yeah. I, I, I will don't know say that why. he kind of lever, he kind of leverages that like smarmy. He does into this role though. And I think it works really, really well. Yeah. No, I, I think that he works really well for this role. And I think that he was a necessary character for the, you know, for this squad of troops, but putting all that aside that he was really good in this movie for some reason, I just, I don't like him. I don't know what to say to that, Brad. I think maybe we need to drown your sorrows here in some whiskey. Brad, we have so much to get into to continue talking about Saving Private Ryan. I want to talk about Spielberg. I want to talk about the cinematography. we got to touch on John Williams. There's so much to cover. But for now, let's hit pause. Let's have this Evan Williams. What do you say? So today we are checking out Evan Williams' Black Label. This is just plain old Evan Williams. Brad, I'm I'm kind of relieved to just be drinking regular Evan Williams. I think we've had almost every expression of this brand other than regular old Evan Williams before. Yeah, I mean, we've had the white label, uh, the the single barrel, I think. And, you know, it's kind of it's time. It's the springtime of swill. We might as well get back to the roots. So full disclosure, Brad and I had some other whiskeys planned for the end of this season. And Brad, hey, by the way, did you know that we are only one episode away from the end of our season? This is episode 31 of 32 Bob, in season two. Do you want to know why I did know that this was near the end? Why is that, Brad? Because I am so excited to do the bracket for the end of I the can't season. Wait, man. Like we we didn't get March Madness this year. And so like what better way to celebrate the beauty of of choosing one thing over the other, sending one thing into the fiery abyss, than to do it with some of our favorite movies of all time. Absolutely. All that to say, we had some other whiskeys planned out for the end of this year, and then the coronavirus happened. Brad and I are pretty much holed up in our own homes. We weren't able to swap the whiskeys we usually would swap. And so we have written in a couple whiskeys here at the end of the season. So this is a nice bridge, Brad, because Evan Williams will finish out our springtime of swill. This is definitely under $15. But we're also going to do a battle of the black labels because this week we're doing Evan Williams. Next week, we're going to do Jack Daniels. And I want to see which one of these two bottom shelf favorite black label whiskeys is the better one. Yeah, man. Jack Daniels is the first whiskey that I ever drank in my life. Is it really? It sure is. I got that bad boy from my brother when I was definitely 21. Definitely 21. <laughs> so, Brad, what are we picking up on the nose of this Evan Williams? Honestly, th this really has uh, some nice caramel notes to it for me. It's really easy to talk about caramel notes when it comes to bourbon, but I, I feel like I'm actually getting some nice, strong, caramely notes to this, and, and I'm really impressed right now. I'll tell you what, Brad, this, this has a much more complex nose than I was expecting, and I'm really enjoying you know, nosing it multiple times because I'm getting more and more things off of it. You do get those really, really standard bourbony notes. I think this one has a ton of oak on it. I get a lot of wood notes on this, but then there's also like, there's this sweetness that I don't know if I would even call it caramel. I think for me, it's almost more of a honey sweet or, or maybe some of that mapley like tree sap kind of thing. Like there's just something really nice and woodsy about this that I'm really enjoying. Well, yeah, it probably smells kind of like a banana's foster. Shut up, dude. <laughs> I will say I, I'm also getting some good fruit notes on this. At first, I thought it was maybe like some orange peel. It almost smelled like an old fashioned in my glass. Brad, I don't know if you're picking up on any of those fruit notes, but this really does smell like a more complex whiskey than we may have had throughout most of this springtime of swill. Yeah. And I, honestly, I'm not totally sure how much this costs, but it is a complex nose. It's not blowing me away. It's not the best thing no. I've ever smelled, but I'm going to give it a seven out of 10. Yeah. I'm going to give it a six and a half. There's, there's still a ton of ethanol on this. It's very clearly an inexpensive whiskey, 
but I am I'm pretty impressed so far, and I hope that this bodes well for the taste and the finish. So let's give it a sip. Ooh, holy ethanol, Batman. Yeah, I'll tell you what. This is the first thing I noticed is that it's really thin. It's thin and it, it does taste kind of watery. I did get a lot of black pepper. There's definitely that alcohol burn that you're talking about, Brad, but it was very peppery, um, which kind of continued over from those wood notes I got in the nose. And then I do taste a lot of honey on this. It's pretty standard. It's thin. It's spicy. It has some honey sweet to it. I don't know, Brad. What are you thinking? No, I'm right there with you, Bob. This is like very middle of the road. I'm going to give it a five out of 10 on the taste because I'm not really getting anything crazy. Uh, It definitely is an alcohol forward flavor on your palate. I do notice the black pepper quite a bit. That that's definitely coming through strong, Um, but it's, it's just okay. It's not quite as good as the nose suggested it might be. Yeah, Brad, I'm going to give it a six on the taste. It's it is middle of the road. I do still find it pleasant and enjoyable. It wasn't a crazy amount of uh, ethanol. It wasn't harsh to me. I still find it to be a pretty easy sipper. So it's going to get a six. Where it's going to suffer for me is on the finish because the finish on this is pretty much non-existent. Yeah, I, yeah. The the finish just dissipates so quickly and you're just kind of left with an unpleasant Kentucky hug because there's no flavor to go along with it. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't quite get the burn in my chest that you are, Brad, but I just didn't like the fact that there wasn't anything lingering on this whatsoever. I'm only going to give it a four on finish. I actually gave it a four as well, Bob. So that brings us to overall balance. That's where we talk about the nose, the taste, the finish all put together. Did anything stand out in a positive or a negative way? I do think this is a fairly well-balanced whiskey, Brad. I don't think that the finish lived up to anything else, and it did kind of seem like we started off on a high note with the nose and got kind of less complex as we went. Yeah. But I didn't find anything. It wasn't bitter. It wasn't harsh. It was a pretty pleasant experience. I'm actually going to give this a 7 out of 10 on balance. For a whiskey this cheap, I I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was just okay. The The balance did not impress me. The quality didn't stay consistent throughout. It, it got genuinely worse as you went along. I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10 on, on balance. All right. So that is taking us to our overall value score. Now, we have said time and again in the springtime of Swill, we're focusing on $15 or less for a fifth. And a fifth of Evan Williams Black in the state of Ohio will cost you $11.99. So this is, yeah, this is on the low end even of the springtime of Swill. This is almost the same price as Benchmark. This is less than Heaven Hill Green Label cost me in Kentucky. This is like $4 less than Mellow Corn, Brad. Oh my gosh, Uh, dude. I think this is a phenomenal value when it comes to bottom shelf whiskeys. Is it my favorite whiskey ever? No. But the more I think about it, Brad, for 12 bucks, I don't know a widely available bourbon that I can think of off the top of my head that I would recommend above this. And because of that, I'm going to give it a nine out of 10 on value. I'm going to give it a seven out of 10. I I think that this is something you could have at your house any day of the week. Um, You could use it for mixers. You could use it as an easy sipper. It's a very versatile, cheap whiskey, and I am impressed with the value. I wasn't expecting you to say that it was, you know, 11 or 12 bucks. I will say I have a kind of soft spot in my heart for Evan Williams Black Label. I was at a wedding this past summer, and it was outdoors, and the reception was outdoors, and it was in the 90s. And we were dancing, and it was very hot. And between pounding waters, I was like, I need a drink. I'm going to go get a drink. And all they had in the way of whiskey... They had no other kinds of whiskey except Evan Williams Black Label. And they they poured me some Evan Williams. And I was like, you know what? It is what it is. I'm just going to try it. And I was really pleasantly surprised because I feel like this gets a reputation as every bar's well whiskey. It's a mixer. I think it stands up pretty well on its own, Brad, for a $12 whiskey. I'm definitely going to recommend this. I don't know if you would, but I'm going to recommend. And it's bringing me out to a 325 out of 50. Yeah, I would recommend as well. I think this is something that you could pull off your shelf any day of the week and drink it straight. You can drink it with a, you know, an ice cube or you could mix it in with something else and it would be good anyway. And you're not going to be upset about pouring it because it costs you pennies on the dollar. So, yeah, I would say go for it. Go buy a bottle of Evan Williams. 
my total comes out to a 28 out of 50. All right, so that brings us to a 60.5 or a 30.25 out of 50. I think that's a pretty good average, Brad. This is our scores in this series have been helped by the price. And if it wasn't for the price, this would be a middle tier whiskey at for best. Sure. But but adding that value score into it, I really do think that for the price, it would be hard to find anything that I would say is, you know, markedly better than this. Well, Bob, I'm a little worried about next week because, you know, I know that Jack Daniels is 20 to $25 for a fifth. And I don't know if it's a lot higher quality than this. I I will admit I haven't drank Jack Daniels in quite a few years. It has been quite a while. So I'm intrigued to go back to it, but I don't know if it's a ton higher quality than this. Yeah, I totally agree. I might actually end up sampling them side by side next week, Brad, and and taking price out of the equation because I think with value in mind, I really do think Evan Williams is probably going to win. But just based on taste alone, I think this is as good, if not better, than Jack Daniels. Yeah, well, we'll get to that next week with the Battle of the Black Labels. But for now, I think we need to finish talking about Saving Private Ryan. What do you think, Bob? Let's get to it, Brad. So that was Evan Williams Black Label, a whiskey that we both recommend and a very fitting end to the springtime of Swill. Yeah, Bob, I I have actually really enjoyed this series, um, not only because it barely affected my budget, but also because we actually had some pretty good whiskeys in this time. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think this, this kind of helps to break down that stigma of higher priced is always better. We found that to not be true. In our very first few episodes when we tried Basil Hayden's, the most overpriced, overrated whiskey of all time. Dude, that that stuff was garbage. <laughs> Pure. Any chance we get to trash Basil Hayden's, we're going to take it. trash it. <laughs> all right, Brad. So getting back into talking about Saving Private Ryan, I want to hear your thoughts on your boy, John Williams. Every time we have a movie that John Williams composed the score to, we have to touch on it a little bit. The man's a freaking legend and he can do no wrong. But what'd you think of his score for this movie? I, Dude, I love John Williams. I like with any composer, there are certain moments where you go, oh, yeah, that's Hans Zimmer. That's John Williams. Like, like you, you notice certain themes that that sometimes carry throughout their music. I didn't notice that in this movie that like this wasn't a movie where I was like, oh, this is the John Williams score. I, I noticed these trademark things. I really think he did a beautiful job of conveying the emotions of the scenes in this film. I, I think he did an amazing job at keeping the viewer entranced with what was happening on screen. I was really blown away. I think John Williams stretched himself a little bit Um, to be a little different than his signature sound. I can agree with that. I think he was definitely utilizing some things that he doesn't typically, you know, one of them was uh, the snare drum that had the kind of, you know, drummer boy march to it. I will say, Brad, this might be one of the few times we disagree during the course of this episode. I think that the score for this movie is really great. And that if you pulled up Spotify and wanted to listen to a soundtrack while you were studying, it's a really great piece of music. But this is one of those times where I feel like the music for the movie didn't fit the vibe of the movie really well. Mm. Sometimes I felt like there were a few scenes where the score was completely out of place for what I was watching. And one of the one of the worst, most egregious ones for me was when they were kind of uh, they'd just gone through the whole plan to defend the bridge. And then there's this kind of montage scene of them like prepping everything and building the sock bombs. And John Williams score gets like really weirdly bouncy. And it sounded like the great escape. And I was like, this is this is way too peppy for what this movie is so far. Bob, I, I as you started to say that, I literally almost started humming. Bump, 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 bada, bump, bump. Yeah. So that's one of the, the things that I would say is a negative for this movie. 
I think that might also be part of why people think that the opening and the closing scenes are so schmaltzy because Williams really does lay into the strings and the, you know, there, there are some times in this movie when uh, General Marshall finally decides that we're going to go rescue Ryan, that scene ends with the music resolving into a major chord. And it's like, it's this really weirdly happy ending. And I feel like sometimes the music is implying that like what's happening on screen is good or is bad or things like that. And I think that that can kind of lend itself to this argument that this movie is pro-war, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like in some ways, the music kind of betrays what Spielberg may or may not have been going for. So this is one of the few scores that I would say I'm not a huge fan of from John Williams. That's really interesting. I don't actually disagree um, with your take on that. What's interesting to me is that pretty much any war movie that you watch after Saving Private Ryan employs pretty much this exact soundtrack. You know what I mean? Like, they all sound so similar in the way that they portray war that I'm just curious. I'm just interested in how John Williams' portrayal of war in this particular soundtrack affected so many other movies that came after it. That's a really good point, Brad. And that's not the only place that this movie had an influence on war movies that came after it. This is one of those moments where I want to nerd out for just a second about the cinematography in this movie by a guy named uh, Janusz Kaminski. Uh, Steven Spielberg has worked with him a few times. And what they did in this movie, and Brad, I don't know if you noticed it or not in the course of the movie, but especially during the combat scenes, the the motion seems almost kind of jittery. And it's not just that the camera is shaking, but it's the way things are moving across the screen. And what the cinematographer did to accomplish this is, you know, they were using film cameras then. It wasn't digital. They adjusted the shutter speed of the camera. And what that does is it only allowed so much light in for each frame of what was being filmed. And because of that, there's no motion blur. What we see with our eyes, like the way that we can tell that something is moving from point A to point B is is between each frame, you kind of get these blurring things that happen. And this movie, he said that it was shot almost like it was staccato for those of you who are like musicians. You kind of notice that it's like it seems like too crisp, too clear. When something blows up, it's like you can see every particle of dust that's happening. And this is a technique that has been ripped off ever since Saving Private Ryan. People actually call it the Saving Private Ryan effect. I absolutely love what they did with the camera in this movie, Brad. There's just something that you can tell as a viewer. It's just slightly different than what you're used to. And I didn't even know the language to describe it until I read a whole bunch of cinematography articles for this episode. But I think that whatever they're doing in camera, it really works to kind of enhance this sense of like the battle happening around you, the chaos of it, the hyper awareness of people blowing up all around you. It really put me in a completely different headspace watching this movie. Yeah, honestly, a movie that I'm thinking of would be like We we Were Soldiers. Films like that, I feel like they owe almost their entire existence to Saving Private Ryan because you have these cinematography techniques, you have these musical scores, you have this type of character development, the Band of Brothers type of feel that Saving Private Ryan really pioneered in a lot of different ways. And like you said, Bob, I I think this movie is beautiful. Like, it is beautifully shot from the slow moments where they're walking through the French countryside to the horror of battle. It is absolutely beautifully shot in that you, you get the sense that this is exactly how things happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the cinematographer said that 90% of this movie was done with handheld cameras. And you notice it, especially in the battle scenes. But even in some of those shots, I feel like we don't give enough credit to just how well choreographed the battle scenes were. And especially some of these shots where like the camera will pan left and you'll see something happening. And then all of a sudden Tom Hanks will cross in front of the camera and then the camera's following him. They're these really sophisticated techniques that as you're watching the movie in the heat of battle, you don't notice them. But I would really love to see how they planned out each of these sequences, especially that opening invasion and the closing battle, because Spielberg so clearly gives you a sense of the geography of that beach, of that French village that's been bombed out. You know exactly where everybody is. It's not like, I I hate to keep throwing this guy under the bus, but it's not like a Michael Bay movie 
where the action sometimes can just be disorienting and you don't know where you are or what's flying around the screen. At every moment in this movie, I knew exactly where each character was in relation to the camera. And it makes for better movie watching. It's a better experience because Spielberg is such a master at directing action. Well, and you you also get a sense of how much bigger this battle is than just your character that you care about. You know, when you have a scene where you you have a staticky type shot of a battle and Tom Hanks comes across the camera and it slowly tracks with Tom, you kind of get this sense that Tom Hanks is entering into the scene, that he is entering into a battle that's already raging around him. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And there's this sense that this war is bigger than just this one character, and yet you get to spend time with this one character so you can ask these big philosophical questions that the film is asking you. So, Brad, before we give our final scores, I do want to touch on one thing that if there is anything that I dislike about this movie, and there's very few things, I do think in a couple places the script gets a little bit thin, a little bit schmaltzy sometimes. And the really funny thing that I noticed this time around, Brad, is that it seemed like the scenes where they're actually developing the plot and giving exposition were the worst scenes in the movie. And the scenes where they just let these guys talk to each other were the best scenes in the movie. I like I almost physically rolled my eyes at the one scene between Tom Hanks and Tom Sizemore, the sergeant, where Sizemore's character says the name of the movie. He's like, well, Mike, what do you think? And Sizemore's like, well, I think that Maybe saving Private Ryan will be the best thing. And then they cut back to Tom Hanks and he says, oh, brother. And I was like, did you really write that scene? Like, it was so bad. Yeah, man. So I don't know if you had the same experience with it, but I was really kind of surprised by the fact that the scenes that mattered the least to the plot were actually the best written scenes in the movie. They really were. And, And I think that what that is, is that Spielberg and the writers had a sense of who they wanted their characters to be. But I think they realized that they needed something of a plot to put these characters into. And I don't know if they really knew how to integrate that plot into mattering into who they were as characters. And and obviously the you know the plot of saving this one kid whose brothers died, that's what made them ask all the questions. But how do you fit in telling the audience, well, these three boys died, we must go save the fourth? Like And you get these awkward scenes trying to explain that. Brad, I want to touch on one more thing. I want to respond to one more criticism of this movie because I love this film. And I think that the worst take that people have on this film, which seems to be the majority take on this for people who don't like it, is that the movie is A, pro-America and B, pro-war. And to that, I would say almost exactly what you said in the first half, Brad. Yes, I think it is pro-America. I don't think it's pro-war. In fact, I don't think it's anti-war either. I think Spielberg set out to make a film that depicted war as honestly as he possibly could and allowed the gray area to be present. I don't see this as a movie that celebrates war. I don't see this as a movie that celebrates America's decisions to go into war. Here's what I'll say, though. I think it's a it's a pro-America movie. The first shot of the movie is an American flag. The last shot of the movie is an American flag. And that leaves you, the viewer, with the question of what is Spielberg trying to say about America in this movie? And if the movie's not pro-war, then he's saying something else. And what I think he's saying is this. One thing that Steven Spielberg has always seemed to champion is people who do their jobs. Spielberg seems to be the champion of the everyman. And for me, the key to understanding this movie is when Tom Hanks gives that little mini speech about, I don't know who Ryan is, I don't care, but if finding him and sending him home, if that gets me home to my wife, he says, that's my mission. This movie celebrates people who do their job, who grapple with the morals and the ethics of doing their job, but who at the end of the day, put their nose to the grindstone and do what they're supposed to do. The reason that Upham in this movie is portrayed as a coward isn't because he's not bought into the cause of the war. It's because he fails to do his job. He fails to have the other soldiers backs. And at the end of the movie, what we're left with is this image of the American flag. I don't think that what Spielberg is doing by putting the flag at the end of the movie is supporting the war itself. But what he's supporting is ordinary people who had a job to do and did it. 
This is not a pro-war movie. It's not an anti-war movie. He's making a point about people who are caught in the middle of it all and still had the bravery to do what they were asked to do. Honestly, Bob, I, I think on the deepest level, one of the most important things to the history of American society is this idea that we are shaped by conflict, that we are shaped by hardship. You know, whether or not you like war, you have to recognize that war shapes people. And that when you look at the characters of this film, they are shaped by conflict. They are shaped by this grand tension between nations. And that the American soldiers in this movie, they sacrifice for one another because it's the right thing to do. And that they become better people because of it. And at the end of the film, you see Private Ryan grappling with this question of, am I a good person? And I think that's I think that he is highlighting the tension that America often feels is even after this conflict, even after this, you know, this conflagration of nations, we had to continually ask ourselves as a nation, are we really better off? Did this conflict make us better? And we keep telling ourselves that it did. But there's always that small part of us that wonders, am I, you know, was did my life make their sacrifice worth it? And this is where I want to stick up for Spielberg as a filmmaker, too, and what he's trying to say with his film. He came up in a generation of filmmakers in the 70s that were making blatantly anti-war movies. And I think that people are so trained now to see each movie about war as a director's big statement about the nature of war, that when a filmmaker doesn't come out and blatantly be pro-war or anti-war, they accuse that filmmaker of somehow being deficient. Of like, you didn't do a good enough job of telling us what to think of war. And I don't think that's even Spielberg's objective with this movie. I think that critics of this movie really want to see him take a stance on the morality of what's going on. And he's making this completely separate kind of amoral argument, not immoral, but just regardless of what these guys are facing, what I want to celebrate as a filmmaker, what I see as America, what I see as symbolized by that flag is that these guys had a job to do and they did it. And that is worth celebrating. And so, Brad, that brings me to my final score for this movie. I do not think this is a perfect film. I think that there are probably, like you said, three to five minutes of stuff I would cut out. This is such an important film for me personally. It's such an important film in the history of American movies that I can't even get around the minor quibbles that I have. This will forever be a 10 out of 10 for me. And as I watched this movie, the more critically I took it, the more Spielberg would come up with a set piece or the script would have this incredible knockout punch of a scene that would just knock me off my feet and make me fall in love with the filmmaking of this movie again. It is just, how do you describe it? It's a landmark film, Brad, and it's a 10 out of 10 for me. Bob, I am right there with you. This movie, you know, I, I saw it once when I was younger. I've seen it now again. I, I'm just blown away at the epic nature of this film and yet how Spielberg draws you into these personal relationships and shows you these common, normal, English teacher type men facing this deep, dark conflict. I think it's a beautiful film. I just can't get around giving it a 10 out of 10. I, this this movie means so much to America as a history. Um, I think it means so much as a as a time capsule to kind of show what was happening during World War II. You just can't get around how important this movie is. For me, as a guy who appreciates filmmaking too, I don't know if I would point someone to another Spielberg movie as a better example of him as a director. You know, you point someone to Goodfellas for Martin Scorsese. It's got all the themes that you see in a Scorsese movie. It's got the mob. It's got the fast pacing and the editing and the Catholic guilt. It's all there. With this movie, you've got Spielberg at his most technically impressive. He's innovative. He's doing things no one has ever done before. And then he also leans into his sentimental side. He gets into the schmaltzy stuff. Everything that you could say about Spielberg, positive and negative, is represented in this film. And I think it, it creates this almost overwhelming sense of a filmmaker at the height of his powers. 
So would you say then this is Spielberg's piece de resistance? So that's the thing. I don't know if I would call it his best movie or not. I, I just think that what I would definitely say is that this is the movie that I would point someone to to see all the trademarks of a Steven Spielberg film, if that makes sense. I will probably say that from a technical standpoint, I think this is my favorite Steven Spielberg film. Yeah, I mean, like, it's right up there, Brad, for like sure. I, like, I can't get away from it. You know, there's other films that I might enjoy more that are, you know, like Raiders of the Lost Ark is just a fun movie. But I can't get around how amazing this film is. And, and it might it might be my favorite Spielberg film. So there you have it. It's tens across the board from us here at Film and Whiskey, but we want to know what you think. So please get on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or give us a phone call. We would love to hear your voice here on the Film and Whiskey podcast. The phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that phone number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we will be finishing out season two with our last film for the season, Robert Zemeckis' 1985 classic, Back to the Future. For the Film and Whiskey podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.